Welcome to the Epigenetics Podcast from Active Motif. Join host Dr. Stefan Dillinger for lively discussions with leading epigenetics researchers. Hear about their past experiments, what they're working on now, and what's coming next. You know their papers, now get to know them and discover the stories behind the science. Hello and welcome to this episode of the Epigenetics Podcast. Today I'm happy to welcome Ines Drinnenberg from the Institute Curie on this show. Ines, please let me briefly introduce you to our audience. Uh, you got your PhD from the Whitehead Institute for Biomedical Research at the MIT Cambridge in 2011. You then moved to do a post postdoc at the Fred Hutchinson Cancer Research Center under the supervision of Dr. Steve Hennikoff and Dr. Hamid Malik. And since February 2016, you are heading your own group, Nuclear Dynamics, at Institute Curie in Paris. Paris. Um, a question I like to ask every guest to start off our little podcast is, how did you become interested in biology in the first place and then after that in pursuing a career in science? Well, I think it was not so much like sort of in a, in a, in a kind of a romantic way in that like I was interested by nature or by diversity and collecting like different samples from, from our garden. But I think it was more about sort of like I was fascinated by, by the image um, of, an, uh, of a scientist and in fact, like perhaps a more like sort of conservative image, uh, in fact, because, um, for example, um, we, of course, like watching like different uh, James Bond movies, I never really thought like the most interesting character was James Bond, but more Q. Um, so the scientist, like the inventor who always got like screwed over by James Bond. And uh, um, like likewise, um, there is also a uh, so originally I'm from Germany, and uh, um, and uh, we had of course at that point when I was a child, like we had tapes, and uh, um, uh, one stories I was uh, often listening to was um, it's called TKKG, and uh, um, there again there are four characters, and one of which is uh, Karl, and he was always called Karl the computer, and I thought he was like I thought he was the coolest character, and not so much actually the the more athletic and the uh, um, Yeah, I guess prime characters, and so I guess that generally like got me interested um, in the in in, in science. Um, were like fascinated about, I mean, scientists in general, and uh, um, then like I mean, I would say like after school, it was not so much like um, was not right away clear to me that I really wanted to study um, biology or something science related. In fact, I thought like first about, I mean, my my parents are not uh, both are not scientists. Uh, so I thought about like maybe studying law and uh, um, I also thought about at some point studying music, but then I realized that like, well, I mean, uh, actually studying music, you also really to be good at it. I think you need a, you need some talent in addition. And I don't think that I had that really. And uh, um, so, yeah, I guess, I mean, then um, I, I was also not so much fascinated by biology at that point. And I think that was partially because of uh, the education at, in school. So because we didn't really had so much, didn't really learn so much about molecular biology it was more about uh, um, ecology and so on and so I thought like well I mean maybe uh, um, um, kind of a biochemistry would be like a good compromise for that so I studied started to study mm. biochemistry in the north of Germany and uh, um, in fact yeah I mean I got really hooked <laughs> by these studies so I was really excited about it um, also by learning more about it even though I didn't really know so much about it at the beginning And then, uh, um, yeah, and like kind of, I would say like in the end, like one came to another. So after um, 
um, after studying in, in the north of Germany in Kreisfeld, studying biochemistry, then I moved to a different university, to a bigger city, because I thought I was excited to be a little bit in a bigger city also. Uh, so I moved to Leipzig. And there, actually, uh, um, I uh, um, <clears throat> um, that was at that point, I mean, we still had a diploma. Uh, um, I mean, had a basically, I was I didn't have a bachelor or master's uh, studies yet. It was like still a diploma. And uh, um, so I did my um, diploma thesis at a uh, Max Planck Institute in Leipzig. That is, I think, now actually, especially this year, quite well known because it's uh, uh, the most recent uh, Nobel laureate, uh, Swante Pabo. He was the director. So I um, actually, I was uh, working in his uh, department, uh, but not on ancient DNA. So I was more working on uh on um, like a gene that uh, at that point has been associated with the evolution of speech uh, of, or of articulation in particular, which was FOXP2. And actually this, I would say, uh, um, got me more into like the, uh, like more interested in general about evolution. So I think, uh, um, yeah, I think that was my entry point mm -hmm. into, um, into science and especially into evolution. So right now you don't focus on FOXP2 anymore, but on centromeric proteins. And maybe we can uh, switch over to your science that centers exactly uh, around centromeres, how they can form in organis organisms that lack the CENH3, and how centromeres influence the spatial organization of chromosomes. Uh, maybe we can start in 2014, because this is, I think, uh, was the time when the first paper with your name on it, uh, focusing on centromeres, was published in eLife. Uh, in this study, you showed that CENH3 uh, was lost independently in at least four lineages of insects creating holocentric chromosomes. Um, could you maybe talk about what holocentric chromosomes are and then uh, about what you found out in the study? Yeah, so holocentric chromosomes, I mean, are known since a long, long time. Actually, they have there are some uh, drawings of holocentric chromosomes dating back to the 80, 1880. Uh, by Theodor Marcello Bovary, Bovary because they uh, worked on a um, on Ascaris, which is a par parasitic nematode, and uh, um, they were not so much interested in, in holocentric uh, chromosomes, but um, they were more interested in yeah, I mean how basically chromosomes are the are the basis of inheritance, and uh, um, so basically like um, and what was quite amazing about like this these drawings from Bovary was that they just came out a few years later than um, the drawings from Fleming. Who first described basically centromeres, um, and uh, um, and uh, showed that like sort of the primary constriction, which I mean I think uh, is uh, which I mean now we know is, is basically contains the centromere is the one that's associated with the um, with spindle fibers. So basically, what what Fleming has shown is uh, an image of uh, chromosomes that I think we are all very familiar with, which is like the X shape uh, image of chromosomes. Um, where the centromeres um, overlap the primary constriction. So in that case, um, basically, uh, the centromeres restricted to one uh, region of the chromosomes. Now, uh, in contrast to that, holocentric chromosomes do not have a primary constriction. So instead, the sister chromatids are just lying in parallel uh, to one another. And this is because centromeric activity actually is spread out along um, maybe even up to the entire length of, of the chromosome. So they have multiple centromeric sites um, along the entire length and uh, um and uh, um, yeah, and those are basically uh, um, can be interrupted by um, uh, by genes or, or other like more like um, I would say like non-centromeric regions. Um, so that's these are yeah. This is basically like I would say like holocentric chromosomes are <laughs> 
do not only have one centromere, but they have centromeres along the entire length um, of the chromosome. And in fact, what was quite interesting is that um, uh, holocentric chromosomes are, um, I mean, they, the, the organism that people are most familiar with um, or is perhaps the best representative of all holocentrics is uh, the nematodes, the elegans. Um, but what's quite interesting is that there are many, many holocentric um, organisms that have been described since its discovery or since its really like description um, back, uh, by another German biologist, Franz Schrader. And uh, um, here, basically, it has been found that holocentromeres have evolved really in multiple eukaryotic lineages. It has evolved in multiple plant lineages. It had also evolved in multiple uh, animal lineages, in particular in arthropods. And uh, um, so, yeah, when I learned about that, that like holocentric organisms are much more widespread than I thought um, they were. So I got interested in um, in holocentric insects because at that point, we basically only knew about, um, mostly knew about uh, um um, uh, C. elegance as or we, studies have been published on C. elegance on the architecture of C. elegance holocentromere. And uh, um, I wanted to look into other holocentric organisms. And so this is when I got into insects. And uh, um, because actually in insects has been described that there have been multiple independent transitions as well to holocentric chromosomes, at least four independent transitions. And uh, um, and uh, <laughs> and like initially um, Part of the reason why I also, I guess, got into insects is because uh, um, I knew that from um, some insect organisms, which are the Lepidoptera, that are the butterflies and moths, we have cell lines. And I thought like, oh, that's great. Like we can just use the cell lines to map the centromeres to see where they are located along the chromosomes. And uh, um, and then um, and then basically like the, of course, the easiest way to do so, or like the most common way to do so is by um, by mapping the centromeric histone H3 variant that is specifically incorporated into centromeres. So this uh, variant is called, as you said, like uh, CENH3 or also CEMP-A in humans. And then then basically I was searching for uh, CENH3 in the genome of um, our model organism, which is the silk moth bombix mori, and I couldn't find it. And then, um, so that was at the beginning a little bit disturbing because I thought like, okay, like if I cannot find it, then then the project is, is dead at that point, cannot map the centromeres. And then, uh, but then basically we were searching in, in, in other um, um, Lepidopteran uh, genomes. And again, we couldn't find it in any, and then it's sort of like, okay, this is actually quite interesting. So it's not a, probably a question of genome assembly. It's this, this, this gene really seems to be lost in, in, in this group of organisms. And that was interesting because really CNH3 or, um, or SIMP-A um, in, in all organisms, like, or like if you um, if you read a review on on centromeres, it's always said that like well, CNH three is is the cornerstone for kinetochore assembly. It's, it's an epigenetic marker of centromeres, and uh, um, so it was always it was basically assumed to be um, absolutely essential for centromere function. So not uh, finding organisms, especially even abundant groups of organisms that do not encode for CNH three is yeah, I mean was <laughs> was was quite interesting, and. Uh, um, Maybe I can interrupt here because a question comes up um, before we move into uh, the kinetochore assembly. Um, the point of centromeres or, or also feature, genomic feature of centromeres is that there are specific repeat repeats at the centromere, right? So the, the centromere forms where you have those uh, repeat elements. But when you don't have like the centromere, where do they form? Are 
other repeats present throughout the genomes where centromeres might then form or where, where do they form then? Yeah, so indeed um, many um, regional centromeres um, are enriched uh, for repeats. Now in holocentric organisms, that's not necessarily the case. So um, there are some holocentric organisms where the centromeres are associated with repeats. In fact, it has most recently been mapped in plants. And um, but actually, in our um, uh, in yeah, in, in our um, model organisms that we are studying in holocentric insects, um, at least in the Lepidoptera, we don't really find those to be associated with repeats. And in, in fact, it's true that like um, um, in terms of genome organization. Um, repeats are more, um, are not sort of, um, there are perhaps some clusters of repeats in the genome nevertheless, but generally they're more dispersed uh, along the genome, along along the chromosome. So they're not so much clustered as like, as it is indeed the case in, in, in many monocentric organisms. So um, next, when we move along the timeline, you wrote a book chapter where you provide guidelines for the computational characterization and annotation of histone variants. Um, so what was special about this approach and how does it help to characterize evolutionary tra trajectories? Ah, <laughs> yes, that's a book chapter that I wrote together with a colleague um, because both of us, we were searching, like we were basically um, doing a lot of uh, searches for, for, for histone variants. And um, uh, so I think one, um, um, so we just wanted to provide like guidelines how to, how to, um, if you're interested in, in, in mapping the histone variants of your, of your genome of interest. So um, how do you identify those? And, uh, um, and I think this, perhaps this book chapter might be especially perhaps useful now because, um, I mean, from um, work from uh, various labs, including uh, my postdoctoral lab, um, it's really shown that it's not uh, that we, that um, many uh, eukaryotes don't only encode for sort of like the standard histone variants uh, that we all know of, like H2A, like the core histone H2A, H2B, H3, and H4, uh, as well as like the sort of the most standard histone variants, H2AZ, um, H2AX, which is involved in DNA repair, et cetera, H3.3, but there are many more histone variants that are identified in um, perhaps more specific lineages. And we just wanted to basically provide guidelines, like how to how to go about uh, that and identify those. And uh, um, yeah, I think that okay. was the reason why we published yeah. that. <laughs> so then you moved on to investigate kinetochore assembly, as you already uh, referenced to. Um, this process relies on the histone variant SNH3 uh, in most eukaryotes. However, in some, the histone variant is lost and you looked at how kinetochores are assembled in those animals. Um, so what did you find there? Yeah, so indeed, like, um, I mean, uh, it was, again, like, unexpected to find that indeed, like, uh, SNH3 uh, has been lost in, for example, in the Lepidoptera, and this because of two um, functions that SNH3 has in, in many um, organisms. So one of which is indeed its function in kinetochore assembly. And uh, um, so it's basically SNH3 is this, uh, like, marks the site where the kinetochore is going to assemble. So it's recruiting kinetochore components to this particular site. And uh, um, so we were curious about like, well, I mean, if, if you do not have this sort of like recruiting factor at that point, um, which binds to other kinetochore components, I mean, how, how does kinetochore assembly work? And I think like in, in, in certainly in um, other studies that are uh, published um, more recently now, um, 
on the structure of the kinetochore, um, you find that um, there are in, um, in, in, in vertebrates or in, uh, in fungi and as well like um, uh, from our work in, in insects, um, many kinetochore components have been identified. So the kinetochore is a multiprotein complex, especially the inner kinetochore. It con uh, it, uh, uh, con um, it's composed of, um, of several proteins that are like conveniently named after the alphabet. And many of those also have DNA binding activity. So there are multiple connections of the kinetochore, of the inner kinetochore to chromatin. So basically this, this, um, um, the connection to chromatin is not only made by, by SNH3, which is a histone, which is incorporated into chromatin, but also by other kinetochore components. Nevertheless, in the absence of, um, of SNH3, the kinetochore by itself is just a DNA binding complex. So it can, can, or a chromatin binding complex. So, um, it, uh, at least, uh, from our work suggests that it doesn't really have a specificity to a particular um, DNA sequence, for example. And so um, basically by uh, when we identified um, the loss of, of CNH3, we wanted to see like, well, I mean, other kinetochore components are present in these organisms, so performed uh, IP mass spec analysis and that revealed the presence of multiple kinetochore components. So now we actually have a pretty good idea about the structure of the kinetochore um, or the composition at least of the kinetochore. And uh, um, so it seems to be more or less there as it is in, for example, there in vertebrates, except uh, despite the, the absence of, of SNH3 along with actually its direct DNA binding partner, which is called SMC. You then followed up on this <clears throat> by investigating how those holocentromeres are organized and regulated in the insects that are lacking SNH3. Um, can you talk about this, uh, what you found and yeah, what you did there? Mm -hmm. So um, basically, having identified uh, kinetochore components in um, in Lepidoptera allowed us to uh, also, I mean, generate antibodies against some of those, which fortunately have worked. And uh, so this was really nice because then we could uh, use those antibodies to perform chip-seq analysis to really map where the centromeres are. Because at that point, I mean, the molecular organization of the holocentromere uh, in CNH3-deficient Lepidoptera was unknown. And again, like here, It was really useful to have these cell lines that we can just <laughs> use to, uh, for our analysis. And uh, um, yeah, so basically we uh, we mapped the um, the kinetochores uh, along the chromosomes, and we found that um, it's um, it, it basically it, it it was the chip signal was enriched in in about half the genome, like mapping to large uh, chromosomal domains. So um, that doesn't really mean that half the genome is occupied by the kinetochore because it's a uh, chip um, experiment from a cell population, but um, it just shows that like half the genome was apparently permissive for kinetochore assembly. And so again, we couldn't really find any sequence motive that is associated with uh, with the centromere, so which would suggest a genetic mechanism of defining the centromeric sites and those energy deficient organisms. But instead, when we basically uh, uh, mapped um, different uh, chromatin modifications, transcription, and um, nucleus and turnover, we found that um, centromeres or kinetochores form in, in regions where um, um, where there is no transcription and where there is so basically to, no to nucleus and turnover. So to heterochromatic regions, probably. Yes, yes, yeah. In particular, I mean, we found it to be enriched in, in, in regions that are, um, uh, that are, um, marked by H, uh, H3K27 trimethylation, but, uh, um, more so actually in regions that are, that are not active. So there are also uh, centromeric regions that are not enriched for H3K27 trimethylation. So not thinking about this mark as being like kind of a, um, 
uh, recruiter for the for the kinetic core. So it's it's I think it's more sort of like chromatin activity itself, which is um, an important determinant for where you can form the kinetic core or not. And I think that's in a way that we thought that's actually also quite intuitive because after all, it's the kinetic core is a large um, complex, and maybe if you have transcription going through um, a gene. You just the kinetic core cannot assemble in these regions. So the kinetic core just basically passively assembles along uh, regions where it is allowed to assemble. So it's a very sort of like passive, I mean, in our model, like a very passive and recessive, like sort of, I guess, way to to determine the centromeres in the absence of um, yeah any sequence specificity or perhaps any epigenetic specification. So it's maybe more like a stochastic process. So you it's like assembled on the on the whole chromosome, but it gets pushed away by the polymerase when it goes through and then it just stays where it where there's no disturbance um that's the model i mean basically we could uh, show that if we activate some genes we found that the kinetic core was indeed was lost um over those regions and when the genes were silent again it just came back so this really seems that um there's nothing sort of like that that memorizes these particular regions where the centromere has been but instead the centromere which or the kinetic core i mean it's kind of a, think about it as equivalent <laughs> can just form in these regions uh, as long as chromatin activity is low and indeed sort of um, this also means that if you change chromatin activity um, you change centromere profiles and this is something we are interested in investigating now I mean further to basically see whether indeed like any any piece of DNA as long as it's silent can uh, can induce a centromere in these in these organisms so we are trying to introduce ectopic uh, DNA um, into the cells uh, but also are interested in, in in mapping the centromeres perhaps in different tissues where uh, chromatin um, is different chromatin profiles are different whether or not this affects centromere formation as well. More recently, in collaboration with Phnom Trend, you compared how wild-type mono- and holocentric cells perform mitosis, which may provide novel insights into abnormal cancer cell mitosis. Um, could you talk about the approach you took and what you found there? Yeah. So, um, um, Fong is a, is, is a collaborator, and um, I would say that, I mean, the work on spindle assembly is really like his more his expertise than the expertise in our lab. But basically what he has realized is that uh, spindle morphology is, seems to be really different in Bombix compared to um, apparently other um, organisms. So Bombix has this, uh, what he calls like square shape like spindles, and um, which might be like, um, in fact um, a result of, of, of the holocentric architecture of Bombix, but we don't really know that yet. And um, what, um, uh, what basically what we are interested uh, in investigating is to see whether um, known maps and motors that are involved in, in, in spindle formation and uh, regulation. Um, so how do those, uh, what's their contribution or their role or significance in, in the um, uh, more like kind of square shaped spindle and bombix like in this strange morphology. And indeed he found already by uh, basically using the tools that we have established in the lab, um, our cell lines, he found that um, there's a different significance for particular factors uh, that are um, um, like, as you said, like kinesin-14, so on that are, uh, that don't seem to be so important for uh, spindle morphology and uh, spindle uh, regulation in, in humans, for example. And uh, um, yeah, so this is basically. So your lab is relatively young and you are relatively at the beginning of your research career. So what is it that you are doing now and 
will focus on, let's say, in the next five years or for the next grant, let's say? Yeah. So um, after having identified um, or an idea about um, how um, the CNH3 deficient holocentromeres um, are regulated and what the profiles are in, in Lepidoptera, we are um, interested in expanding to other Lepidopteran um, organisms. Um, so, um, and this is really nice now because um, there have been many, many more genome assemblies that have recently been released. Um, this is part of the so-called Darwin Tree of Life project, um, which um, occurs in England where they sequence, I mean, I think they want to sequence in the end, like all organisms that are present in England and the UK. So um, this is a fantastic data set for us, uh, chromosome uh, level assemblies. And um, what uh, we would be really interested in is now like to see whether or not this um, the same type of centromere regulation that is dependent on um, uh, chromatin activity also applies for, to other um, uh, to other Lepidoptera. So that's that's one angle. And um, here it would particularly be interested in focusing on some Lepidoptera that has dramatically changed their carrier types and to see whether or not this could be due to any changes in um, in centromere profiles or perhaps be driven by um, by uh, by by centromeres which after all could be like really plastic given the fact that they are really dependent on the chromatin activity. Um, another angle is that um, we want to get more insights into the evolutionary transition from a mono to a, to a sanitary deficient holocentromere. And here we aim to um, investigate um, again in collaboration with, um, with other labs um, on uh, water striders, which are hemiptera. This is a completely different group of holocentric insects, which is interesting to us because it's known that they are holocentric, but they have retained CNH3. So really the question is, is CNH3 still at the centrum as CNH3 is essential in these organisms? And do the centromeres resemble the ones that we've identified in Lepidoptera? Um, and uh, another uh, line of research uh, that we are uh, now more sort of like um, uh, following up on is... Um, uh, the three-dimensional organization of uh, holocentric chromosomes. Um, for sure, we are in the long run very interested in understanding the three-dimensional organization of holocentric chromosomes in mitosis because of the fact that centromeres cluster along the surface of chromosomes, um, so which implies that there's a certain way how the uh, chromatin is organized in 3D that allows this clustering, or there's also a role of the centromere in, in enabling this clustering. But um, in addition to that, so we've already performed high C analysis on uh, on uh, bombix, and uh, uh, with the aim of uh, better understanding like how the centromere acts in interface, at least uh, in influencing 3D genome organization, and that actually led to a kind of more serendipitous discovery of a uh, new type of genome, what we call genome-wide compartment. So usually um, genomes are organized into so-called A and B compartments um, in many organisms, not in all. And uh, those are like A compartments are, trans are usually active chromatin, B compartments uh, correspond to inactive chromatin, and this is also the case for Bombix, but we've also identified a third type of compartment, call it compartment X, which basically, this is not published, but hopefully we are going to like, um, submit it soon, where um, uh, we, uh, those, those regions seem to uh, have very, very strong cis interactions, but don't interact at trans. And um, now, we find them in other Lepidoptera as well, but we don't really uh, um, know the function of these, um, of this sort of compartment X. Um, so this don't means, even, this mm -hmm. means uh, those, those domains only interact with themselves, so within the X compartment and not with A and B, correct? Not with A and B, not, not even with other X entrants. So okay. it seems like it's really strong cis interaction, and I think it's quite exciting because um, there are... Um, 
yeah, we, I mean, we have some models about how they can form um, uh, and we have some ideas what could be the function, but all these like really fundamental questions are completely open now. And I think that's definitely something that um, we want to follow up on. This is with um, members in the lab that are um, really like, yeah, experts in, <laughs> in especially high sea analysis. And this is uh, only true for those organisms or is this more general um, feature? It is. I um, we find it also in other Lepidoptera, that's for sure. Um, uh, and um, how much beyond uh, those compartments exist um, is currently unclear. But I think uh, with again, like with these like great collections of data sets that are being released by the Darwin Tree of Life project, we can really look into um, many other insects to see how far those are conserved. So in the last let's say 32 minutes <laughs> uh, we have taken a journey through a scientific career and to end this interview i have two more rather general questions the first one did you at one point of your career face the situation that you have reached a dead end or did not know how to proceed to unravel the questions you wanted to answer ah um I don't think that it was like one particular point where I thought like, okay, I'm completely going to give up on science, um, where I was really, um, about to, to, to give up on it. But nevertheless, I would say that there, like these thoughts come to, um, I have these thoughts many times, but perhaps not so much in a serious manner. And like, I think, for example, like after being at a conference where I, I see like really great research, I think like, I mean, what am I doing here? What am, why am I part of this community? And uh, um, so I might as well just like sort of give up on it. But then I think that like, well, um, I'm also still, I'm of course like really excited about our research in the lab. And I think it's quite a privilege that um, um, our job allows us to listen to like really fantastic presentations and research of other people as well and follow that. I think that's, um, so I would say like there was never ever a moment where I really was about to like, I'm going to um, give up on science, but sort of the, thoughts of like, okay, I might as well just do something different um, comes up multiple times, even if it's not completely serious. So it's more the small frustrations each and every day when you do your experiments and not like questioning the, the greater uh, ideas of your research. Yes, I think so. Yeah. Mm -hmm. um, so to finish off, uh, can you maybe give a short summary about your most important findings or something that we might have missed in this interview? I think we probably covered already a lot. I would say that um, the um, finding that uh, CNH3 has been lost, I think it's uh, in, in, in Lepidoptera was um, was something really unexpected and uh, um, new at that point. Um, perhaps, um, well, this is serendipitous this discovery, I would say, perhaps more interesting was the fact, um, or like to me, maybe more important was also the fact that We found the loss not only in, in Lepidoptera, but like, like basically going out into other uh, holocentric insect organisms. We find that, in fact, other holocentric insect organisms have also lost um, this particular histo variant. So this was, I would say, like very interesting because because of this correlation that has emerged of the loss of CNH3 and the presence of holocentric chromosomes. Even though we actually think that the loss of CNH3 has probably been um, the second step uh, before, after the transition to a holocentric architecture, which again is supported by the fact that we've identified some holocentric organisms that, um, that uh, yeah, that, that encode for CNH3. So it's lost because it's no longer needed and not the loss led to the formation of the holocentric chromosomes. 
this is exactly the model and i think um and then um you might argue that uh, might ask like well i mean why is it for example is is the is the formation of polycentric chromosomes something that um allows the loss of snh3 um i think this could be the case um if SNH3 really acts as an epigenetic marker that defines a centromeric locus, if in that case, and it's like in, um, um, if, if this epigenetic uh, marking is no longer needed, um, there, uh, but then of course, I mean, SNH3 in other holocentric organisms, SNH3 is not lost, but if you look at the kinetochores, you find that, um, uh, the kinetochores are, um, uh, are basically uh, lost all of those uh, sort of inner kinetochore components that are present in, for example, in holocentric lepidoptera. Um, and I think in order to really allow the loss of SNH3, you need to also allow, um, need to also acquire the function of connecting the kinetochore to chromatin on other kinetochore components. So that's why perhaps it's, it cannot be lost in, for example, in, in, in C. elegans because C. elegans uh, lacks all of those inner kinetochore components. Yeah, interesting, interesting. Uh, yeah, go ahead. Yeah. Um, yeah, I just want to say that um, um, I think it's, um, uh, these are of course like all models and <laughs> and I think we can just like sort of look at extant organisms to to um, build our models. But really understanding how the evolutionary transition has occurred, I mean, this is something that we don't really know. Yeah, thank you, Ines, for your time and for being on this show. Thank you. <laughs> Thanks for listening to this episode of the Epigenetics Podcast from Active Motif. We hope you enjoyed it. You can find all the mentioned references in the show notes. Please rate, review, and subscribe to our podcast on your favorite podcast platform so you never miss an episode. We'd love to hear from you, so please send us your feedback on Twitter, Facebook, LinkedIn, or via email at podcast at activemotif.com and we'll give you a shout-out in a future episode. For more great epigenetics content, check out the Active Motif blog at activemotif.com forward slash blog. Thanks for listening, and stay tuned.